welcome. It's great to have you here. I'm Nicole Bond, host of There's an Elephant in My Paddock. This episode, I'm inviting you to be part of the Queensland Rural Regional Remote Women's Network Eka High Tea, where we presented the podcast to a live audience of women and a few men from across Queensland who were in the capital for the state's royal show. I'll introduce you to the panel soon, but before I do, it's really important that you know that the There's an Elephant in My Paddock podcast is solely supported by the Rural Financial Counselling Service North Queensland. They provide independent professional financial counselling for rural businesses at risk of financial hardship. Find out more by googling Rural Financial Counselling Service North Queensland or by listening right to the end of this podcast. For this episode, we've gathered four impressive women forging creative careers with a focus on rural and regional communities. The theme for this afternoon is connecting through creativity. And as you are about to hear, our panel have all set about making connections within their own communities or outwardly towards others by using their creativity. And all of them have become leaders in their fields. So let's get to know a little bit more about them. I'll call to the stage first, Edwina Robertson. Now, Edwina, we're going to stay up here while we do this one, so you can read the questions in advance. (laughs) So, many of you in the room would already know Edwina. She's a wedding photographer who hails from country New South Wales. She began taking photos while working in the real estate game in Brisbane. Once she caught the shutterbug, she worked hard to learn wedding portraiture, built a successful business. But Edwina wasn't content capturing country weddings and has devised and executed two high-profile passion projects. The first, Wander of the West, in 2017, saw her travel solo around many parts, remote parts, in fact, of Australia, taking photos of locals willing to exchange a photo shoot in exchange for food, bed and fuel to get to the next job. The second was in 2018. This one was called One Bucket, a nine-week drought awareness-raising trip in New South Wales and Queensland where she worked tirelessly to connect the stories of people surviving or struggling through drought to the broader community via social media. Her efforts even had her written up in the Batuta Advocate when Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull hugged her during his drought tour. She's just returned from a sabbatical working on a beef enterprise in Queensland's Gulf and the Cape. Please make her feel welcome. Thanks very much. So, Edwina, you are totally, I mean, we can hear through that, that you're totally on board um, connecting with people through your creativity. In fact, your last project was all about that. Why is creativity a fantastic way to connect with people who are similar or dissimilar? I think when it comes to connecting with people, the best way to tell a story or to make that connection through an issue or... um, any element that needs to be told is through humanising, humanising a problem. And through my photography and through writing about it and actually putting, putting a person and a face behind a story or an issue, it really allows 
the reader or the respondent to understand and to, to feel that attachment and that connection with whatever the story is being told. Um, so, you know, you, you look at your normal um, mainstream media, it's all very broad. Um, you can see, oh, there's drought on. It doesn't really, really sort of ascertain many feelings for anybody. Um, but when you say, hey, look, there's Farmer Joe. Farmer Joe has two young children. Um, his youngest, who's four years old, is helping mum uh, feed, hand feed livestock. And then you start to create this picture and this mental image. And th that's a real person. That's, that's humanising the story and the issue. I think that's, that's the way um, that I've been able to do what I've been able to do and, and create some, some movement through that particular process. What is it about photography that hooked you in? Is it the art? Is it the technique? Was it the pursuit of getting that perfect shot or, or the perfect job and lifestyle? A little bit of all of the above. Um, so, for my, basically, I used to be a real estate photographer and uh, had a little bit of a rough trot. I was dating a, a man at the time and we were going to move interstate together and then um, I'd given away my real estate photography business. Uh, and two weeks before we moved, I discovered he was doing the dirty. Thanks, mate. Really nice. Anyway, so I had a, I had a little bit of time off. I, my family are in northern New South Wales and I went home for three months and I actually was diagnosed with depression. It was a pretty, pretty low time for me. I had no job, lost the love of my life at the time. Um, and literally one morning I woke up and I went, you know what, I need to, I need to get my life back on track. And I didn't know what I was going to do, but I sort of created a list of the things I wanted out of a career. So with those things, um, I wanted the flexibility to travel Australia and the world. I wanted to not have a capped income. So, you know, whatever, whatever work I was willing to put in, I could make income off that. Um, I wanted flexibility within my lifestyle and, and career. So if I wanted to have a weekend or a couple of weeks off, um, I'm not a nine to five person. And at that particular time, I was 27 and I thought, you know, in five years' time, I might have met my husband and maybe thinking about having a family. And so I can potentially be a full-time mum and work a couple of weekends a, a month and still earn a healthy income. Um, so they were kind of the things I really wanted out of a career. And then I sort of fell into weddings because of that. Uh, and then I just one day went, okay, righto. I'm going to be a wedding photographer. And that's how it all sort of took off. So it's quite, you know, it's a little bit uh, different to what most people would do to find a career. Um, but I think through that, because I founded a career around the things I really wanted out of a career, that's why it's been so enjoyable for me. And I've been, I've been doing it now for seven years. Um, and it's hard work, don't get me wrong. I've <laughs> sacrificed quite a lot. But... I think, yeah, with, with, in terms of the create, I've never sort of thought of myself as a photographer. I've, I think I've always seen myself as a storyteller, even when it comes to brides, sharing their love for their, you know, partners or their families and those special moments. And my work, if any of you have ever seen it, it's very candid. And that's, that's what's special to me. It's actually capturing that, that moment and 
um, it's not so much about, oh, here's a photo. It's about what does that photo make, how does that make you feel and how will that re be remembered for future generations? Now, a lot of people in the room may have seen you on social media, so I should say at this point, if you wanted to um, tweet or Facebook any of the, the great insights that you hear, to, hear here today, hashtag QRRRWNEWHT2019. And I think a few of our panellists will be talking to them about hashtags, but it's the QRNECA Week high, Women's High Tea 2019, and also you can um, tag Edwina in those too. Now, you mentioned, I, I had this down as my last question, but you were just talking about brides. I just, can you share it? Like, do you ever share bridezilla stories? It's a bit early in the afternoon for that. How long have you got, Nicole? <laughs> we'll talk after. Now, I want to know, with camera equipment becoming more affordable and Photoshop tools becoming more sophisticated and easy to use, how do you keep your confidence in what um, can be a fairly competitive field? I believe it's actually about being authentic. Um, for those, I'm sure a lot of you have Instagram and most of you would have Facebook. It's actually, even as a photographer, sometimes it's not even about the image itself or the quality of the image and how that image represents something. It's actually about the story you tell behind the image. So for me, a lot of it is actually in, in the blurb and what I write to that image. So sometimes we do need those words to go with the, the visual side of it. And I think that for me is, is quite important. It's, about it's, it's always about sharing stories. Um, people are naturally inquisitive. They naturally want to know other people's business. Um, and that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. We can, we can share all sorts of stories and we can educate and we can um, teach things to other people. But for me, look, I, I think it's now's the best time ever for anyone to pick up a camera and you can get apps on your phone that are free and, and create beautiful imagery. But I also think with that does come the story and the words behind why that image is particularly special or what that particular image means to, to whoever's reading. Now, we'll hear from you later in the panel discussion about, uh, I have no doubt you'll be drawing from your experience with the two projects you've done, the Wander of the West and the One Bucket, but I'm just keen to know, what have you learnt from doing those projects? Because you don't do anything by halves, that's what I've learnt researching you. Um... In a nutshell, uh, basically both of those projects have had the same common denominator and that is bridging the gap between the city and the bush. Um, I think personally from my experience, the, the thing I've learned over both of those, even though one was a little bit probably more positive than the other, I think it's that there is a huge divide between the city and the bush and it's not because the city and the urban population don't want to know what's happening in the bush, it's because they're just not told. And I think as a community and as a network, um, rural and regional communities really have to step up to, to encourage and to tell and to share what's going on west of the Great Divide because the city, they, they, do, they do care. They absolutely do care. They just don't know. And I think that's where the biggest gap is and that's what I've seen on both the projects I've completed. Last question for you. Now, both of those projects that you, um, that you designed and executed, 
had their high points, absolutely, but both came at either a financial or a personal cost. When you take into consideration the short attention span on social media, have those costs been worth it for you? Um, oh, that's a good question, Nicole. I, both projects were passion projects. I never really anticipated what would be sort of the outcome of both, like particularly for One Bucket, drought awareness campaign to make other people aware of what was happening um, in rural areas. I think, <sighs> look, at the end of the day, if whatever I've done has helped one person, then to me that's worth it. Um, my, my motto is, uh, if you are more fortunate than others, build a longer table, don't build a higher fence. So I think if, if everyone can do something that can help at least one other person, then there's, it's not done in vain. Absolutely. What a great point to wrap up this little get to know you on. Could you please take a seat and I'll um, introduce our next guest and we'll be back talking to you in a moment, Edwina. Give her a round of applause, everyone. Charlotte Durak is our next guest. Charlotte has a decade's worth of experience in the creative industry, both in advertising and graphic design. She has an impressive portfolio in branding, marketing and digital strategy. In 2016, she decided to use her experience and her unconventional way of thinking and interest in agriculture to build her business, Agri-Creative, because she saw a need for design with an agricultural perspective. Agri-Creative was built on the belief that ag brand stories need to be told with care, but they weren't always landing in the right hands to do so. Her efforts have seen her recognised by reaching the finalist stages in both the 2019 Rural Women's Awards and the 2017 Telstra Young Business Women's Awards. And I particularly love a campaign that she's done for a product for cattle, which showed a cow on a fashion runway, and the tagline was, uh, flies and lice are so last season. Love it. More needs to be more of it. She's got it here. Uh, please help me welcome Charlotte Durack. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening. And I should say as well, of course, the Durack's a famous um, country name, and Charlotte is related to the, the Durack family, which is why agriculture is so important to her. I want to know, though, I, I get a sense from you that it's more than your family connection. What is it about agriculture that makes you dedicate your professional time to it? I think it, it changes so much. And when I first started, it was really about it felt meaningful and it felt right to start something that I knew they needed and there was a, there was a gap there and when I was just, you know, at a cattle um, auction, just standing there looking around thinking to myself, this is, you know, this is pretty hardcore, this is awesome, but they're really not quite there in the way that they're presenting themselves and that's where it began. And three years later, now it's, for me, it's the relationships, it's, it's this it's the most beautiful, and I know, um, Edwini, you touched on it, this humanising and, and, you know, to work in an, such a community feel and have people that we're working with and, and the passion behind what we're doing. It's a really exciting industry to be in and I feel so blessed to be in it. Um, and it, it, celebrating the small wins, the big wins, it's, you're always within that agricultural um, 
you know, at the roots of, of where it all begins and, yeah, it's, I absolutely love it. Um, and I think sometimes sitting in an office in Brisbane or wherever we are, we're always travelling around to see our clients and things, but I feel so connected all the time to this amazing industry and I, I feel very lucky. You're a creative person. Do you think um, farmers and agriculture is quite a creative industry in itself? I definitely think it is. I think we're seeing more innovations, more people thinking outside the box on, you know, and as threats of weather are becoming more pr prevalent, how are we, we going to maximise on our business? How are we going to change things? And they are becoming more and more up-to-date with how to leverage what's happening, how to use technology, how to integrate sophisticated systems. And we're just, we're, they're, they're, we, are, we are getting there. Um, and I think creativity is, is the tool to build something that doesn't exist. And so for us, we're sitting in a, a seed of opportunities within an industry that also has opportunities. And it's this beautiful combination of where can we go next or how can we push it? And I feel also lucky that I work within the whole of ag. So, you know, we'll be in dairy and then we'll be doing seeds and then we'll be promoting tractors and then we'll be... But the system is so integrated. So the stories are all overlapping and innovations. I Even in my role, I can see what, you know, one business is doing and sort of even educate the industry and say, hey, this is what these guys are doing. You should think about this. So... Uh, it's this integration and innovation that's just so magical, really. It's fantastic. Now, we're, all, we're talking about um, creativity and connectedness, and I want to know from a designer, how important is design when it comes to making a connection? Yeah, so uh, that's a really interesting... And, and, you know, I sit on, obviously, in the design world and the design thinking of how to create something out of nothing and um, design is, is the tool to be able to communicate what this what's happening and, and you know reposition a company and and change the what a company is doing and, and design is so important I mean for us that's that's our craft that's how we do it um, but whether it's writing or video or whatever it is that's a creative outlet it's always back to solving a problem and we can use creativity to solve that problem. And for us, that's design because we can build brands alongside something that's not working or, you know, restructure a business using design. You know, we might have a farmer that's being sort of... Um, or a agribusiness that's not making... It's sort of getting scrutinised on price, um, you know, and the way to do that is, you know, let's look at your brand and your brand's positioning you in, a, in the wrong way. Therefore, you have to bring your prices down. So there's, for us, it's about the problem solving and the strategic side of why we use design. And design's just that last 20% where we put it all together. So it is important because it's an output of what we've done, but there's this, I guess, the design thinking that goes into creating that output is, is what's the the core essence. And just finally, we said in your introduction that you think agriculture needs to be handled with care or um, its messaging or its design needs to be put in the right hands. Yeah. Explain that. So when I first started, I thought that I was building this to do exactly what Edwina's doing, 
which I love that you're doing it because someone's got to do it, is this, you know, link between a city and rural. The last three years has actually changed that and, and what we do is, is tell the stories within the agricultural industry and that business to business, farmer to... So it's... Um, it's... Sorry, I've actually forgotten the question. Well, you talked about um, I get the importance for, for agriculture to be in good hands, in the right hands, in, in oh, hands yes. that understand yes. it. So why, why does it need that more than, I don't know, childcare or supermarkets? Yes. So communication is so important to the industry and, you know, the authenticness of, of the relationships and the trust that this industry is built on. And that needs to come through the communication. And... I think being a specialist in ag as an agency, it's our, it's our beautiful ability to say, hey, mate, you've got a, you know, an Angus in, a, in the Brahmin. You know, they're not going to trust you. You're not going to win. You're not going to promote the right products. So they're the first people they are so passionate about their industry. And if you get that wrong and you're trying to sell to them, then that's, that's just the first wrong step. So it's about knowing them and knowing the customer and from what we do about promoting and marketing is knowing how to speak to that audience, how to tell their story so that they don't walk away and they distrust you. So for us, we have agencies, you know, who work on Ferrari and then they try and work on an agricultural product and that just doesn't work. So for us, it's this, you know, it's a, it's a niche that we can really maximise on and also because we know... We're working across this, the whole, you know, industry. We kind of know what's going on and that helps as well. So, yeah. And I think we all feel in great hands. Everyone, welcome Charlotte Jurak. It's such a shame we've only got such a short afternoon with these four wonderful women. We probably could have done four days of discussion. Our next guest has come all the way from WA to be here today. Beck Bignall is an exceptionally passionate advocate for rural Australia and creative media. She is dedicating herself to fostering and supporting rural and regional storytellers through her freelance promotional platform and social media community, The Rural Room, as well as supporting and encouraging rural communities to have their stories told through collaborations. Beck runs her own media company, Cockatoo Collab, in partnership with Dr Marius Foley, and in 2018 she was named the Australian Financial Review's 100 Women of Influence. She's got, um, you've got something to show us today, don't you, Beck? Please make her welcome. I thought that I would show you what I do because um, you can see it for yourself. But the first, I've got two clips to pay, play for you. The first one is a, um, <laughs> um, the first one is a um, video series that I'm an associate producer on that is going to be premiering on August 28, and I'd love you guys to all get behind it. It's called Visible Farmer. So we'll play that, and then after that, I've just developed a little clip quite quickly, just for the purpose of this event, so please don't judge my editing skills, but it's just to show, I guess, um, a little bit about why I do what I do. Yes. <laughs> I think the general public looks at women on farms as being farmers' wives who stay home, have babies, cook a lot of food and send their husbands off to work with a big kiss. 
that's not the reality. So, Beck, it's very clear to me now what you do, but why is it important to you that rural Australians are empowered to tell their own story? I think it, <clears throat> from me, I felt growing up on a farm in Cogent up in WA, particularly being on the west side, you kind of get a little bit forgotten. And I had always been really whimsical and creative, like when we were burning stubble, I could just go out there for hours and create poems and plays and things like that. But I, as I got older, I realised just how far away that dream was because of distance. Mum and Dad took me everywhere, God bless them, and I did everything I could. I think I even wrote to Channel 7 and said, I am here if you need me. <laughs> and I didn't get a call back. Um, but I was really keenly aware of just how far away that opportunity was. And so as I got older, because I was seeing a lot of people around me who just told the best stories. Like, you know, in a community, in a regional community, it is like um, the girls have said before, storytelling is a part of your culture. And so, you know, you're talking to people, you're catching up with them at the supermarket and there's a story or you're going to the football club, there's a story. And I couldn't understand why this talent wasn't being exposed to the world as performers or writers or whatever. And I couldn't understand why everything that I watched portrayed a completely different representation of what I knew life to be like. So I thought what I'll do is I'll skill myself up in the city so that I can actually then come back and tap into all the creativity on the ground and kind of reverse engineer it so that people don't have to leave their communities and they can flourish there. McLeod's daughters. Mm. Any thoughts on that? <laughs> well, to be honest, when I first started making this series, it's been a long process and I totally went down the... Like I said, I'm not making a series about clichés or stereotypes in regional Australia. And then I looked back at what I'd made and I was like, I definitely just made a series about <laughs> clichés and stereotypes in regional Australia. So I've had to go back and refine everything. But my dad said to me, look, you've got to be really serious about this because he said in McLeod's Daughters, I just couldn't cop it when they went into the shed and there were all these sheep that they were drenching and they didn't... They'd go and drench the same sheep because they weren't... <laughs> you know, he said they, they didn't have the techniques right. If you're going to make a regional film, you need to get the facts straight. And I was like, all right, Dad. And so, so, yeah. so, like, you know, they have cultural advisors when there's um, films about Indigenous things. You think we need, to do like, farming advisors to come in? Oh, well, I have just gone... I went back to the community because I was like, I need to do this properly, so I'm going to go back home and spend, like, basically live back on the farm. And there's just nuance and, like, attention to detail things that are really amazing and great for the story. Like... I was sitting at a cafe the other day and I sort of had this plot point that I needed to develop and I heard one of my mates say to her husband, oh, Daniel's just started growing this new variety of whatever it was. She goes, but we're a bit worried because he's, uh, he's growing it in the front paddock. And I was like, I got home and I was like, Dad, what's, what's, can you just elaborate on the front paddock thing? And he was like, oh, you've got to be so careful about what's in the front paddock, you know, what that means to the community when they're driving past, if you get bogged in the front paddock, da 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 And I was like, oh, my God, that's the plot point I needed, like, <laughs> for this particular thing. So you capture the reality of the situation yeah. being back there. So what is the biggest misconception or stereotype? I mean, you've, you've straddled the city and the country and you're working in this creative field. What is the biggest misconception or stereotype 
that rural people come up against when it comes to that creativity or having their stories told? Look, there's a couple of things going between the city and the country that I see. Um, one of the perceptions that I find really difficult, particularly with our network of media makers, is um, we do a lot of work where we try to tap into big business to get them to engage local people on the ground so that they can do the media campaigns and stuff because I'm an actress as well and I get keep getting, you know, um, slides to go and read for a farmer and it is written as a bloke and all this sort of thing. Like they've got that traditional perception that hasn't changed because city organisations are writing the briefs and the scripts and the slides. So I'm trying to say if you actually connected with people on the ground, they could actually change, you know, the perception because they know the perception. Um, and I'm getting a little way with that. People are mostly like, oh, it's really lovely what you're doing. And then I try and get them to, like, <laughs> commit to working with me and they're like, oh, yes, okay, we'll get back to you on that. Because a lot of the time, and I keep, you know, like I'm pretty determined, um, but one of the things is there's this weird perception that people in the country couldn't be as professional as creatives, but we've actually seen the complete opposite. Like, I work in both worlds and that's not the case. And in a lot of cases, creatives move to regional mm. areas. So, all the time I'm having to fight for industrial rates and things like that for creatives, that bothers me a little bit, that perception. Yeah, we're going to dive into that a bit more soon. Yes. I'm looking forward to that. Thank you very much. Awesome. Make welcome Beck Bignall. Thanks, Beck. And our final member of the panel is Annabelle Hickson. Annabelle is a former newspaper reporter with The Australian and columnist with Country Style magazine. She fell in love with a farmer who lives west of Tenerfield on the Queensland, New South Wales border on a pecan farm. She continues to work as a freelance writer and photographer and this year she published her first book called A Tree in the House. And you will see on your table there's a little flyer. Unfortunately, she couldn't bring any books today, but this will tell you where you can find find it. It's about the joys of working with flowers and things growing around you and it has attracted a lot of acclaim and has been sold all over the world. It's even been translated into Dutch and German and she also hosts her own podcast which was named in the iTunes Top 10 in 2018 called A Dispatch to a Friend. So to find out a little bit more, let's welcome this wonderful overachiever. Thanks for coming along today, Annabelle Hickson. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Annabelle, you have so many talents, writing and photography, but when did you start getting interested in large-scale artistic botanical arrangements? Well, my mother thinks it's very, very funny that I'm a you know, published florist because she likes to remind me that growing up I didn't know the difference between a dogwood and a dahlia. <laughs> and it was only since moving to the country, you know, that that's what prompted. I, I find it so interesting that this is about connecting through creativity here in this rural forum, but it was really only when I moved to a rural area that I connected with my own creativity. And it was with the flowers, it was, we, we moved to this little grim cottage that was just so ugly and awful on the pecan farm. We had no money to do anything to make it look nice. So I just started bringing in all the beautiful stuff that was growing on the side of the road and in the paddocks, and I just covered the ugly walls with foliage and the, you know the the um, my designs got more and more ambitious <laughs> as the days went on and I had things hanging from the ceiling and, and it was wonderful it was, it was actually such a 
eye-opening and empowering thing to realise I could create so much beauty with stuff that was just growing around me and that didn't cost a cent. Well, so that was my next question because I wanted to know, did, do you have like a massive and varied garden to get all your different pieces or you just oh, find no, them? No, no, so when we moved there, no garden at all. It was literally things growing that I had nothing to do with. You know, all the, the beautiful gum and the wild fennel and sometimes poppies would come up on the side. I, I, it's just this beautiful valley and, you know, the gum leaves, how they change colours after it rains. And I just, yeah, it's very, now I ha do have a garden because I've fallen in love with it, although it's, you know, not doing very well because of <laughs> the drought. But, um, yeah, no, mainly it's just stuff on the side of the road because that's the most beautiful, I think. Now, I had to go online and look at, um, at what you do mm -hmm. and it is definitely more than flower arranging, big time. Like, it's big stuff, you use wire and stuff hanging, it looks amazing. But I wanted to know, do you ever have days when you work really hard on it and you just go, nah? That's just looks, that's not nice. Yes, <laughs> yes, definitely. And I often do most of the stuff in my kitchen because I've got these beams that I can hang things from. And so often we will have dinner surrounded by one of my disasters because I'm just too tired and I can't be bothered to move it. So, yeah. How does the rest of the family feel about this? They've come to sort of think it's entirely normal, which is great. <laughs> Where do you get your inspiration from? The bush. Yeah, I mean, really, the abundance of what's... You know, even in these awful dry times, there's still so much. You know, gum, gum, gum. The wattle's just starting to... Fly. It's just looking out the window. And I grew up in the city and, you know, it's very... People, when they wanted flowers, you, they have to buy them. You know, and it, I just... They're so, we're so lucky to live in the bush, I think. Yeah. Now, you ha have been writing and taking photographs for a long time professionally. Mm. Does that still feel creative to you or, is, or are they become sort of tools of the trade? You still get inspired about writing and, and I photography? I love writing and I love... Uh, for about three years, I wrote a column in Country Style and, you know, the magazine, and it gave me such joy because I got to write about my experience of falling in love with the country and... Just what a delight. I mean, to my great shame growing up, I never, I just never thought about life in the country. Did, it just didn't even cross my mind. So it's only now as a, you know, an adult, I just feel like I've been handed this gift because it's delightful. And to write about that is a wonderful process. Yeah, I, 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 love, I love writing about. Well, how does it feel to have your first book published? Has this been something you've always aspired to do and, and was it always going to be about flowers, your first book, or did you think it would I be something else? I always wanted to write a book, but I never thought it would be about flowers. I thought it would be some sort of weird experimental fiction that may have not got ever published. So it's, it's quite a different course um, and I feel proud, but it's funny, you know, the actual public getting published was... A little bit of an anti-climate, and you know, all the fun was in the doing of it. You know, I mean, I guess like every, you know, every project, it's the doing, and then when it's done, it's it's great, you know, but it's, it's just not. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a lovely ending, but the the most satisfying part was the process for sure. We're talking, of course, about connecting and creativity. Do you think connecting through creativity is the best way to make a deep and lasting connection? Like I don't a, know, a I more don't, impactful way. Um, I, I don't know if it's the best because you can connect through all sorts of ways, but it's certainly an easy way to connect. Um, it's funny, through this love of flowers, I've 
I now kind of organise workshops and classes where people come to Tenterfield and we do these things and spend a day together. And then other ones that are longer and we spend four or five days together. And the connections that you make there, it's like school camp, you know, <laughs> intense. And I think it's because we have something we can do together, it's, you know, something creative, using our hands, and it just takes the pressure off trying to be the funniest in the room. You know, it's, it's just a wonderful way in which to hang out with strangers and at the end of the day they really do feel like friends you know I think it definitely promotes encourages and nurtures creativity for sure and yeah. I think you're giving that vibe to everyone in the room today so thank you so much for being here everyone thank put you. your hands together for Annabelle now that you've met the panel what curly question do we have prepared for them Megan Woodward is the woman posing the question to the panel and she's a former ABC Landline reporter and currently works in media and communications sector. She's also a member of QREN and will be presenting at their conference in September. Everyone in this room would identify as an advocate for rural Queensland or rural Australia and many of us are lucky enough to have combined that advocacy with our professions in one way or another. In saying that though, do you ever feel a conflict of interest? And by this I mean you're working in a sector or community you know intimately and have personal connections to, but at the same time you're rightly charging for the work you're doing. Where's your middle ground? Great question, Megan. Let's get the discussion underway and see if we can solve this. So I'm going to start with this question and Edwina, because you've been up here so long keeping the stage warm for us. With such an emphasis on regional and rural storytelling, especially that bridging the gap to urban audiences, when does it turn from a hobby to a commodity and should it? Uh, so this, this question is quite fortuitous because this is a question I have actually been personally going over in my head for for at least the last six months. Um, as a wedding photographer and someone who's been in the industry for seven years but has done some passion projects, it's something I'm, I'm very passionate about, um, what, I've, what I've done in the last couple of years. And it is actually an avenue I want to go into full time. Um, but to do so, it costs money, it costs time, um, you know, it, my, particularly my One Bucket campaign was um, very challenging on me mentally, um, dealing, you know, being around people every day for nine weeks who were suffering through drought and, and seeing the worst of it. So there's a price to pay. And I get, I understand that for some people they might not understand how, an, um, how that might be deserving of an income, but could potentially be an income for me one day and, you know, I'm like anybody else. I have bills to pay. Um, if you had an... For, in, for instance, if you had an environmental problem and you were challenging with your local government or state government, you would get a lawyer involved and that lawyer would be helping you. But because they're seen as a lawyer, there's no problems in, trans, in tr it being an actual tr monetary transaction. So if I'm helping people through telling stories and sharing their issues with um, the broader community or um, bodies or boards or anyone else to try and try and solve that problem, then why shouldn't I be... I make an income off that. 
So I think we have to kind of work past that and go, you know what? Like, if it's helping people and that person's putting their skills, it's not just me taking a photo, putting it on the computer and then applying it to Dropbox and that's it. It's, it's seven years of skills I've earned to get to this point. So um, I think, yeah, look, I, I can see why for some people it can be a bit of a funny thing, but I think we have to move past that and to grow forward and, and progress into the future and tell our stories and have a voice, a regional voice that is heard, particularly in urban communities, this is something that needs to be um, further delved into. Beck, I'm going to come to you because we wrapped up your little introduction before hitting on this. So the hobby commodity push and pull, what are your views? Um, well, I guess we operate a little bit differently because um, our remit is to actually like flip it back. So what we see a lot, particularly in film and TV, is that there's funding available where city organisations go into the regions and basically use the regions for their productions. So the money essentially goes straight out of the region back into the city. And that's the part that I'm trying to cut off because I'm like, if you can get the locals skilled up on the ground and empower them, then that money will stay in the community. So we're looking at developing like satellite production points as part of what we're developing off the Media Stringers Network so that people can actually monetize their own stories. So when we do fictions, obviously that work is not true, but um, it's completely animated. Um, but when it's work that we've got for our Media Stringers, we give them a platform for exposure in the hope that that will help them get grants or jobs. So there's no um, monetary transaction for that. It's just complete an exposure platform. And then, as I said, the one thing I advocate really strongly is that if big media companies are going into local areas, it's not good enough just to kind of go in and go out. There should be pathway systems developing the talent on the ground and I think giving everyone the opportunity to monetize their own story. Charlotte, um, it's your bread and butter. This is your bread and butter, isn't it? I'd like to know your I get views. A, I get a little bit furious at this question, I'm not going to lie. Um, not furious, but I'm, I'm fairly passionate about it. I, I personally think as women we're not that great at putting a value on our skills. I just don't think we are. And I think that's been my biggest challenge is I have the ability to design and I've always been able to do it and it's come very naturally. But how do I go and get... How do I ask for money for that? And, and that's been a really big thing for me um, and I think a lot of people feel that in how do we put a value on what we do. And the way that I've mastered it over the last three years is instead of thinking about myself, I think about what, the, what is the problem that I'm solving for that person and what is the value that that will have on their business or on their life. And if we take time and we take money out of it, that, for me, feels really comfortable. That value feels comfortable. And aligning what we charge with the potential of what we're doing feels great, feels normal, and it feels easy to accept. Um, so I think, I, I think building those relationships with businesses rather than we aren't here to just do a transaction. Actually, we're here to apply value into your business on what you're doing because we believe in what you're doing. And if you believe in what you're doing, you'll pay us to do it. And 
I think that's, yeah, I think about it in a very strategic way. And I, I probably will, I'll quickly show you some examples of this um, that I've just kind of slapped together. Yeah. That's all right. Yeah, yeah. Do you know how to? Good. Um, because I, I thought it might be worth showing how, I guess, our process of someone coming and saying, I want you to make us a flyer. And I say, talk to me. <laughs> and I say, talk to me. What is it? What is it? What are we doing? What, what, what are we achieving? What's the problem? And they say, oh, right, uh, the product isn't reaching a new target sector. Okay, am I making you a flyer or am I solving that huge problem for your global business that happens to be in agriculture? Um, and so I changed my thinking about it and I think that is a really powerful tool that I've learned to think about how I can add value to them. Um, and this is solving a problem using design and thinking about how can we have cut through? How can we solve that problem? How can we launch a product into the market that doesn't currently exist? And doing fun stuff. And they said yes to that global animal health company, which was great. Um, sorry, I'm t kind of taking the mic a little bit here, but... Uh, and again, another example of this is uh, another problem that came to me. We need a logo. Talk to me. What are we doing? Uh, our customers are too price-driven. That's a problem. That's a problem. I don't think a logo is going to do that. Um, and so we built them a brand from this logo, which is, you know, I'd probably be pretty price-driven if I looked at that. <laughs> and we developed them a brand that repositioned them to be so premium that no one even asked about their prices anymore. Um, and we created functional design to show, you know, the elements of of their business and I think for me that's value not price so everybody's got everyone's got a skill and can apply that to a problem and therefore they should be paid <laughs> Annabelle I, I do want to just briefly ask you though because when we look across the panel when Edwina's not up in the golf mustering or you know she's based in Brisbane Charlotte's based in Brisbane um Beck's uh, sort of predominantly city-based you live in your small community and you would be known in your community as a photographer and a writer and a person who knows how to tell stories do you get lent on to do to do stuff yes I do and um, I often think there's this American artist, um, Laurie Henderson, and she, when she's deciding on what projects to take on, she has three criteria. And in order for her to sort of say yes and take on a project, it has to meet two of the criteria. So her criteria are, one, it has to be fun, two, it has to be interesting, three, it has to make money. So, you know, I, I use that a fair bit, you know, when I need to 
when my bank balance is alarmingly low, I obviously have to consider criteria three. But I found that living in a small rural town, I've needed to add a fourth criteria, and that is it has to benefit the community. Um, I think you, for all of us who do live in small towns, we, or in small communities rather than towns, towns and the communities around, we all know what keeps these towns what makes them as delightful as they are, and that is volunteer work, that's fundraising, that's, you know, mums and dads, men and women doing things for free. And as a, as a city slicker coming in, I just think it's such an incredible place to live because of that. You know, I, I think just as a nation we're sort of moving away from collectivism and much more towards individualism. But I feel like in the country there's still, you know, we as groups care about individuals. We know everyone in the groups. And I, I, I think it's such a beautiful thing and I think it's worth fighting for. So I have added that fourth criteria in. And, you know, it has to, a project ideally meets two or three of those criteria. Like, I hate doing tuck shop. I hate it. It's not interesting. It's not fun. It's not, doesn't make money. <laughs> But it does help the community. So I would rather not do tuck shop and pick something else, say, taking photos of a small business, which to me is interesting. You know, so it's interesting and it benefits the community. So I sort of put that criteria on it. But I do actually think as a, it's my civic duty as someone who lives in a small area to, to, do, you know, to donate my time for free just as everyone else does. You keep the mic because the next thing I want to ask is... You're all storytellers on stage, right? Whose responsibility is it to be telling regional stories and rural stories? I mean, to be proactive, is, is there uh, organisations... You know, we saw a period through live export. We all now have um, access to social media. Whose job is it? to be telling these stories? I'll start with you as a former long-term journalist. Yeah, I, I, I do feel quite passionate about this. Um, so I think, well, it's, I mean, it's no one's responsibility. You know, it's not like you have the responsibility of storytelling for that. But I feel, you know, to, be, to, to tell rural stories without a rural perspective would be like telling the, you know, female story just through a male perspective or, you know, I mean, it would just be completely incomplete. So it's crucial. And, I mean, I think stories are important because stories lead to conversations which lead to, you know, a changing culture which lead to actions. So the better our stories are, the more informed they are, the richer, the deeper they are, the better the resulting actions will be. So I guess from that sense we all have a civic duty to sort of tell our stories. And I am so tired of the sort of story that I hear of um, country, you know, in sort of cities of country people being simple and, um, you know, a bit behind the times and all that, because what I see through my eyes is a completely different picture. I see progressive people, very smart people, diverse people. You know, I see such a richer story that's being told. So I think it's really important to tell stories and there are ways to do it very easily, you know, via social media and things like that. They're free. So we it's never been easier to actually tell our stories. And one more point too. The, I mean, I think, you know, 100 years ago, two-thirds of the population lived outside of the capital cities, but now two-thirds live in the capital cities. So 
we all were connected to the country somehow not that long ago. You know, we either were a farmer or we knew a farmer or we, you know. But now it is a very different picture. So if we want our stories known, we have to actually tell them. You know, people don't just know them through their normal life. Edwina, I want to ask you because I, I sense from, particularly from your One Bucket campaign, that came from being frustrated um, that you felt a story wasn't being told. So you stepped, stepped up. I think my biggest frustration is lack of consistency. I think, as a prime example, say, live export. Something happens, some livestock die on a boat, and then that's what's thrown into... Sorry? Sorry? Uh, that's what's thrown into mainstream media. So everyone outside of rural communities are just hearing negative stuff. So instantly... That's what they think is happening in agriculture in rural Australia. But because there's a lack of positive stories and great things that are happening and the great word that's it's not getting out there, they, they don't have anything to sort of go, okay, well, okay, this, this is one instance, but what about the 99 other instances of really positive animal welfare things that are happening? And I think that's where... For me personally, that's what I see, a real lacking of that consistency of just keeping the good story and the positive story out there. And I think it's everybody's responsibility as, as the rural and regional communities where a minority and everyone has to pick up their game. It's not just one person. It's not just a, a board. It's not just one town. It's everybody. And I think if we can put this message out there and go, hey, look, you know, you've got a handful of people starting. Let's encourage everyone else to do so. Um, so it's a team effort. It really is. And keeping that message out there constantly, particularly positive message about animal welfare and environmental and climate change and all the other stuff that sort of is a big dark black cloud over the, over rural Australia right now, I think that can, that can really help and... Um, going forward be be a positive motion. I wonder though then is there potential for well-meaning inexperienced public storytellers to do more harm than good? Charlotte or even Beck? Can you say that one more time? Sorry. I'm a creative, I'm not a word. <laughs> That's okay. Is there potential for well-meaning but inexperienced public storytellers to do more harm than good in agriculture or in rural communities? I think they have more power in this space. Is that... So, yes, essentially I think so because I think, as Edwina said, they don't tell their story and I'm always wondering why they don't and I think there's this... almost this traditional hush-hush, don't look over the... don't tell what the secrets are and that filters down from like a very sort of hierarchical traditional structure of a lot of these ag businesses that we work with. But even there's this kind of let's hide it. And I think, yeah, the, the, the public people who, who don't know, uh, again, like they've got more power, they'll put it in the media and that's what we'll see. So for me, I, yeah, I, I'm with Edwina. I think everybody from a ground level needs to do it. And not be 
not be scared to do it and know that you don't need like an agency to sit and tell your story. You can just do it by, you know, as you said, just jump on the phone and just use it. But I think, you know, new technologies are quite daunting and quite, um, for me, it's that, yeah, I, I try to understand why they're not. And I think, yeah, I think public could be, if they don't understand the real story and the real things that go on exactly how you've said, you know, it could again be quite stereotyped in my eyes but Beck, what do you what what um what do you want to contribute here because you know now we have these social media platforms that are just whatever are on your phone any everyone can have a platform now I, I mean I think one thing that I find really interesting about this topic is I hear a lot of the time people saying I really want to bridge that gap I want to get over but what I see a lot of in regional communities is people staying on their side of the bridge and that's a big issue because actually in the city people want to know what's happening on this side of the bridge but if we don't go over that side enough then we're actually just in an echo chamber and we know what we mean we all know what we mean but they don't know what we mean and so something happens that's like quite emotional and it triggers this outrage and they get outraged and these guys get outraged and there's no middle ground. And I think we talk about story like it's a narrative, but story is just in connection, like we were talking about before. So it could be, you know, the loss of the fact that kids used to go and stay with their cousins on holidays and, and have experiences that they took back into their lives. Like it doesn't need to be a social media photo. Like those are great, but I do think there is a habit that I've seen of when people, regional people find their voice, they sort of haven't spoken for a long time because they've been concerned about sticking their head out. But then when they do it, it's because it's like a reaction because, you know, something really passionate has come out. Whereas I think if we just go calmly, because I talk to people in the city and they're so interested. It's just they've got no access. There's no one taking those stories in into that environment. And, like, I do a lot of work in the city and I will go into events and say to people or go into a meeting and throw the regional hat on the table, people are like, that's fantastic. That's great. Like, yeah, of course. But it's just that there's not enough of that cross-pollination. So I think that we need to maybe slightly shift the idea about bridging the gap and look at what we can be doing to connect into those centres so that we're always there, so that we do get a voice. Because there is genuine interest. So, are you saying social media is not going to do it because it's an echo chamber? No, I mean, I think it is. I think in a lot of ways, a lot of social media accounts that I see... I mean, I think, Annabelle, you've got a really good audience um, because you've got a city background. And the same with you, Edwina, because what you're doing is so large-scale. So, I think the examples on the stage and also what you're doing with the clients are... Like, people are connecting, so I think it's really effective. But the person on the ground that's just going out to their own network is probably not going that next sort of step. So I've seen social media be really fantastic and I've also seen it be really um, inflam inflammatory. <laughs> Couldn't say that word for a second. Inflammatory. So um, sometimes I don't think it always is the right answer if people aren't educated because it's a digital footprint and it remains there forever and that can be really um, harmful for people. Um, so, yeah, I think it's 
I think it's a bigger idea. And then not everyone's on social media as well, but there's a lot of people that have great stories to tell that aren't tapped into the digital age. So, I, yeah, I think, you know, like pen friends used to be a great way of connecting. I think it's going back to some of those traditional means as well to see how we can tap into that exchange, you know, a way that's still story but might not be a story artefact. There's probably a few people in this room uh, who've been in a situation where they feel they should write or photograph or produce something because they feel either really personally connected or passionate about something that they think the broader um, country needs to know, you know, and I guess coming back to your campaigns, um, Edwina, you know, you really felt that they needed to know that. But also with that, you know that there's no money in it or there's no one willing to pay for it because the question comes from someone trying to balance that professional um, and free work. As a professional, how do you, how do you manage that? That, that knowing that the story needs to be told, but, but also knowing, well, it won't go any further than my social media account. Um, for me personally, uh, both of my projects that I've done has been something that innately I knew I had to do because particularly for One Bucket and seeing people suffering through drought and families and communities, when you... <sighs> When you see people hurting and no one's acknowledging their problems and they're not being helped or help is um, very little and it's difficult, you know, I guess for me it wasn't even about what it would... It wasn't about me, it was about them. And I had the ability and the skill to at least attempt to make a difference. And for me that's much more than any monetary sort of advancement, but going forward, knowing there's, a, there's always going to be issues in, in rural and regional communities, there's always going to be problems that need to be spoken about that the wider community needs to know about. And I think, yeah, of course, if it's, if it's a full-time project or a full-time job, there needs to be some income made of that. But I think it comes down to, to the reason of why you do something and I think if it comes down to I'm doing this because I want to make money, you're actually never going to go far anyway. If, it, if it's based on passion, if it's based on belief, if it's, if it's based on a greater thing such as helping others, I think that's when you actually make, make a difference and that's when it will become successful. And I think that comes with anything in life. Mm. If you do something with passion and it's not about just the dollar that goes into your bank account, you will ultimately be more successful in whatever you're doing. I'm interested to know if anyone on the panel, because unfortunately we're coming to the end and I feel like we could just continue this all evening. Um, are there any non-traditional streams of income that are, um, that are underutilised or not being used that are interested in distributing positive rural creative work? Did you say... Non-traditional streams of income? Non-traditional, I guess, uh, media. Media, yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. Right. that's what I meant to say. Uh, well, well, yes, I mean, by non-traditional, it's not newspapers, it's not magazines, it's not radio, is that... Yeah. yeah, yes, I mean, it's the whole world of that now. It's all at our fingertips. I mean, I think the challenge, though, is making 
you know, ev anyone can have their own platform now. So anyone can run their own kind of virtual, you know, magazine, but it's, the, the challenge is making it interesting <laughs> to other people. You know, not everyone's going to read it. And I think um, that's where the real creativity lies. You know, you can either be a brilliant writer, which not everyone is, but another sort of really uh, way to get attention is through beauty. You know, there's so much beauty in rural life and everyone's hungry for beautiful things. And I, I think that's quite a... Pa that's, that's probably a lot more powerful than yelling and, you know, being... Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I think we have a lot of beautiful stories that people would love to read, but, you know, it's just a matter of making them interesting enough to sort of rise above all the noise. That's what your business is, is based on, isn't it, Edwina? Beautiful. Yeah, of course. I'd just like to touch on that a little bit. I think, particularly in this time, um, you know, for right now in this instance... We've got, I think it's currently oh, 60, I think it's 67 or 73% of Queensland in drought, 93% of New South Wales in drought. Um, I think this is a time, and I know it's tough for many people, but I also think it's a, a really great time to look at um, supplementary incomes and looking outside the box of just having your income solely off your property or your rural business and it's an exciting time too because who's to see who's to know what's going to happen in five or ten years time um there was a, a down near warrior they've started up a, like a, a kind of tent accommodation this big dome and it's called faraway domes and it's amazing and they've done this on the on the sort of side of of drought now they've got this a, a incredible accommodation looking out over this sort of escarpment and They've just won some big rural award for it, uh, you know, for for tourist award. And I think it's just looking outside of, okay, this is what we've got and this is what nature or the universe or God or whoever you want to believe in has given us and it's hard, but what else can we do outside of this? And I think I think going forward and I think with, with technology and new industry, I think we've all got that access to think outside the box and not be sort of stuck in, in the one income and be reliable on what happens from the heavens. Good point. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think there's never been a better time in terms of technology for people to be remotely employed. And that's certainly what we've been encouraging from a creative point of view. And the other thing is that I love about the opportunity with digital is that we've been taught a particular type of traditional story is good based on the old linear sort of format and what I country people are inherently creative because every day they're solving problems like pure creativity comes from when you have to solve a problem out of like resourcefulness and um, every day that's happening with country people so they may not you know identify as an artist but we've seen so much creativity from the least suspecting people that are like oh I'm not creative well and then we see them operating in their environment and we're like yes you are and what I love about we've we've been upskilling the people that we work with so that they can work through all these platforms and it's really starting to work. We ran a um, video workshop last night teaching the um, network about how, with top entertainment lawyers about how to monetize their content and how to protect their IP. And so we were able to stream that all over regional Australia and provide those skills into those areas so that those people 
in the network can grow and actually start to monetize the stuff they're doing, that money then goes back into the community and, yeah, like I think that they, they're telling stories that are multimedia. It's a new time. People are learning things. There's good stuff. There's interesting stuff. Like, the rules are really being broken. It's a, I think it's a really exciting time. Charlotte? Oh, I was just going to say we're doing a similar thing with... Um, there's an advertising school here in the City Awards School which is promoting really high conceptual and uh, where I'm looking at with another, another rural agency in a similar field setting this, looking at expanding the award school into regional towns to support that and have kick-ass designers coming out of these, these towns and, you know, st strategists and design thinking. So it's, yeah, I love that. It's great. Now, I'm sure the rest of you feel a bit like I, that the conversation has just started and you might have a chance to catch these ladies after, but please put your hands together and thank all of these three marvellous, magnificent women for coming along and sharing their perspectives today. Thanks very much, ladies. That's it for this episode. Thanks to our guests, Edwina Robertson, Charlotte Durack, Beck Bignall and Annabelle Hickson. The team at Curen, led by Melissa Barnett, and also thanks to Megan Woodward for posing the question. And it wouldn't be right if I didn't give a big thanks to my right-hand woman producer, Jane Cudahy. I hope you can join us next time when we bring you another great elephant in the paddock. Hi. I'm Lynette McGuffey from the Rural Financial Counselling Service in Atherton. I would like to take a few minutes to discuss my three top tips for maintaining a good relationship with your banker and ensuring that your bank is working hard to help you achieve your financial goals. Your bank is often a major partner in your business. Without them, it's pretty difficult, if not impossible, to operate. The number one thing you can do to help with the relationship is to keep the lines of communication with them open and contact them early if you feel that you may be about to experience any financial or cash flow difficulty. The earlier that you contact the bank, the better the options that you have available to assist you. For example, if you contact a bank before you need help, you are much more likely to get assistance than if you leave it until after you have written out the cheque or overdrawn your account. Tip number two is know and understand your business and the financial position that you're in and take an active role in your annual review with the banker. You're in a stronger position to both manage your business and negotiate with your bank when you know and understand what is happening in your business. Don't leave it up to your banker or financial provider to complete the analysis of your business for you. Understand what your financial statements is telling you and prepare your own cash flow projections that are accurate and achievable. And lastly, if you are not receiving the service, price and assistance you deserve, look for an alternative. Your bank is there to help you achieve your financial goals. If you are not on the best rate or product for you, or you don't receive the service that your business needs, ask another bank to quote on your business and find one that does. If you are under any financial hardship, please get in contact with your local rural financial counsellor early, as the earlier that we become involved, the more options you have available and the more assistance we can provide and the better the outcome for you. The Rural Financial Counselling Service implements the Australian and Queensland Government's Rural Financial Counselling Program in the Northern Queensland area. 
We provide confidential, impartial and free support for producers who are experiencing or at risk of financial hardship. So please don't hesitate to contact your nearest rural financial counsellor. 